This is HPR episode 2365 entitled Rolling Out a Radio-Based Internet Service in Rural England. It is hosted by Beaver and is about 20 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is One person's quest to get a decent internet connection when the big corporations aren't interested. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, this is Beezer back on Hacker Public Radio after a break of something in the region of two years. The very first HPR episode I ever listened to was number 980 back in 2012. It was about how the residents of a remote part of Lancashire in the north of England had given up all hope that the big telecoms companies would roll out a decent broadband service to where they lived. Their solution was to build a high-speed network all themselves. I found that story inspiring because they didn't just go out and raise a lot of money and pay a company to do it. They installed it all themselves and got themselves trained in all the skills they needed to get the job done. In early 2015, my phone and broadband services were both out of action for about three days. In frustration, I cycled down to the next village in the hope of speaking to the BT engineers, who were said to be there trying to resolve the problem. The rumour was correct, and what they told me was very enlightening. The individual copper wires had been repaired on an ad hoc basis for years and years, but now corrosion was setting in and threatening to create a lot of further problems. At this point, it might be worth describing where I live and how the telecom services are provided. I live in South Shropshire, which is a very rural area of what is already one of the most sparsely populated counties in England. We're in the far west of the country, along the borders of Wales. The nearest big city is uh, Birmingham, which is getting on for 50 miles away to the east. In Britain, there's massive competition in the telecoms market, which, to be fair, has been very beneficial for consumers. If we take the trouble to shop around and haggle, we can probably end up paying less for our telecom services than any other country in Europe. The downside is that the providers concentrate their investment in the big cities where the most money is to be made. This leads to city dwellers generally having much faster and more reliable services than people like me living out in the countryside and also results in some wildly misleading claims. Mobile phone carriers, for example, will routinely publish claims that they serve 95% of the country. But when you study the small print, you discover it is 95% of the country by population, not by geographic area. In Britain, the population distribution is heavily weighted towards three regions, 
London and the southeast, the Midlands and the northwest. Just covering London and the southeast gives you getting on for 35% of the British population, even though it's probably well under 5% of the land area. Although we have a lot of competition between providers, most of them are really glorified resellers. This is because apart from a few specialist cable providers, they all rely on the BT infrastructure as their bearer. The maintenance of this infrastructure is all carried out by a subsidiary of BT called OpenReach, and that's regardless of who you pay for your telecom services. This penalises rural customers again. If you lose your service as a result of a problem with the BT network, you receive compensation of a few pounds a day. If a rural connection cabinet with maybe a few dozen subscribers goes down, and at the same time a nearby urban exchange with hundreds or possibly thousands of subscribers goes down, then there's no price for guessing who gets the service restored first. If you rely on the phone or internet to make your living, those few pounds in compensation are really no compensation at all. The HBR episode about the community in Lancashire showed that there clearly are alternative ways of providing telecom services to rural customers, but their approach struck me as being very daunting. It's not as if we had no internet connections. We did have a copper-based service, which might give you around 2.5 megabits on a good day. But what we didn't have was reliability or an upgrade path. On that day in 2015, with all my connectivity with the outside world lost, I decided to see if anything could be done to improve the situation. The OpenReach website stated that, for my area, they were what they called exploring solutions. But fortunately, I knew somebody with inside knowledge of OpenReach, and he assured me that nothing was going to happen for at least 12 to 18 months, simply because there's no funding for it. Fate has a habit of intervening in events at just the right time. When the phone and internet services were restored, one of the first calls I got was from a friend who lived in a village about five miles away. Not for the first time, he deleted some files from his computer without a backup and he was desperate for me to go around and try to recover them. That turned out to be a lost cause, but while I was showing him how to use cloud storage in the future, I noticed that his upload speed seemed to be surprisingly fast. I ran a test and discovered he was getting 17 megs down and about 3 up. Now, the internet round his way was reputed to be even worse than mine, so I decided to investigate. Sometimes when people say they know nothing about computers, they're just being modest. There are times, though, when they really do mean what they say. And my friend couldn't tell me anything beyond where his router was located, so I had to spend a few minutes following cables inside and outside the house, up to a little white plastic box fixed to a bracket mounted on an external wall. It turned out his landlord had installed a radio-based broadband service which had transformed the internet experience for everyone who nearby who had subscribed to it. As long as you were prepared to pay the monthly fee, a reliable 30 meg connection was just a phone call away. A few days later, I called the company behind the service and asked them if it would be possible to extend it the few miles to where I lived. In doing so, I discovered how the service is provided. 
From a physical connection to an internet gateway, signals are bounced around the area between relays mounted on the tops of hills, of which there are lots around here. The secret is to have an unobstructive line of sight between each relay. The relays themselves each have a potential range of about 20 miles where the topography allows, so extending the network isn't actually all that difficult from a technical standpoint. The biggest problems, it seems, are negotiating with landowners to site the relays and to arrange for a power supply. The outcome of my call was that the company sent a surveyor out to take a look at the lie of the land and the geographic distribution of the potential customers. The conclusion a few days later was that their service could be extended as long as the owner of the hill providing the optimum site for a relay agreed to it. Before there was any point in approaching him though, the company needed to be confident that the market potentially existed to make the service extension viable. There was an implied expectation that I would be able to answer that. My approach to them was based purely on my own needs. I only assumed that other people in the village shared my views. I felt they must do because the subject of poor broadband connections was a regular topic of discussion in the pub. But now I needed to quantify it. It was pretty obvious that the ball was now in my court. Nothing was going to happen unless I made the next move. My only idea that seemed to be practical was to write a letter to every householder in my village and the one neighbouring it. So I drafted a few paragraphs setting out the current position, the slim prospects of BT doing anything to improve it and what the new company could offer. I learned a long time ago that the perfect words you write to make a point today would not seem quite so perfect tomorrow, so I left it a couple of days before finalising the letter, then printed off about 70 copies and set off that evening to hand deliver them to every house and farm in the proposed catchment area. Over the following few days I got emails, a few phone calls and even a couple of personal visits from people who were interested. I continually stressed that I had no financial interest in the company that might be offering the service, but it didn't make much difference. The letter had made that point loud and clear as well, but people insisted on referring to the proposal as your system or your service. I gave it a couple of weeks to record and collate the responses before I reported my findings to the company. Because grants of public funds might be involved in a financing, a weighting had to be applied to every positive response. Essentially, somebody requiring the proposed service for business use was more valuable in terms of attracting funding than a purely residential customer. Armed with my results, the company decided that there was sufficient interest to proceed to the next stage. That was to arrange a public meeting at which the company could explain in detail, face-to-face, exactly what they were proposing to provide, how it would be funded and how much it would cost to use. A big surprise to me was that quite a lot of the positive comments had come from people who lived in the surrounding area but outside my catchment zone. They would not have received a personal copy of my letter so word of mouth had clearly been working wonders. This meant that when it came to publicising the meeting I had to print a lot more copies of the notice and travel further afield to deliver them all. I also put notices on trees, notice boards and other prominent places whether it would be seen by anybody walking or driving past. I even got a couple of offers to help with publicising the meeting, 
But when I accepted those offers and asked the people concerned to actually do something, they stopped replying to my emails. Unfortunately, that's been my experience in many community ventures. Help is offered in the hope that you don't need it. The meeting was held on a hot evening in July in the local community hall, which I'd booked for the occasion. After I'm unlocked, the first people to arrive were the team from the internet company. They're nothing. My worst fears seemed to be coming true, that people were interested about the plan, but not enough to actually give up a couple of hours of their time. However, as I was just beginning to wish I'd never started all this nonsense, a couple of cars pulled up, followed soon afterwards by more cars, people on bikes and people on foot. Suddenly the hall was filling up and I had to set out additional seats. My 30 or so initial respondents had turned into around 70 people in the village hall. Once the technicalities of wireless internet had been explained and questions answered, people were asked to indicate their intention to proceed in principle by filling in a contact sheet. There were something like 40 names on the sheet by the time everyone left. That was more than enough for the scheme to be viable. Things went quiet for a few weeks as the company submitted a proposal to the public funding body. Once that was approved, they then had to get permission from landowners from the, for the mounting not only of the local relay, but also of the additional relays required to get the signal to our area and to make arrangements for electricity supplies to be connected. Now, I don't know if it's the usual practice, but in our case... The power supply issue was resolved by taking a feed from residential property and running it up to the local relay, distance of about half a mile. The local relay is mounted on the top of a high and exposed hill that rises maybe 250 feet above the village. It consists of a wooden pole, basically a shortened telegraph pole, which is firmly anchored into the ground with various devices mounted on brackets to receive the signal from the previous relay and then retransmit it down into the village. Now there's a direct line of sight down to the houses at one end of the village, while houses at the other end receive their signal through a sub-relay mounted on a tall grain silo, the top of which is just within line of sight of the top of the hill. Each customer has a small transceiver mounted somewhere outside with a direct line of sight either to the relay or the sub-relay on top of the grain silo. The transceiver takes its electricity supply from inside the customer's home using a power over ethernet adapter. The transceiver is effectively a router as well, so if you have no need for Wi-Fi, you can simply extend the ethernet link around your home using power line adapters. If you do want Wi-Fi, then you just feed the incoming ethernet cable into a wireless router, and then you can set up any kind of connectivity you want. A big bonus of using the new service is that there's no further dependency on the BT copper connection, so that can be switched off entirely, thereby saving around £17 a month in line rental. That means no phone service either, of course, but that can be mitigated by subscribing to the Vonage VOIP or VoIP service, which works out substantially cheaper than the BT line rental. So what's the situation now? Well, after the public meeting, I emailed all the initial respondents, telling them my role was over and asking them to deal directly with the company from then on. As a result of that, I don't have a definitive idea of just how many people are now using the service. 
Whenever I'm out walking around the area or on my bike, I see transceivers fixed to walls and chimneys, which identifies the home of somebody who's gone for it. However, if the house is oriented with the rear side pointing towards the relay or sub-relay, then the transceiver will not be visible from the lane. This implies there could be more people actually using the service than I'm aware of. I do know that there are people who were very vocal in criticising the standard BT broadband service, but still didn't take up the superior news service. Equally, there are people who never replied to my original letter, didn't attend the public meeting, who are using it. Subscribers can select a download speed between 5 and 30 megabits a second, rising in increments of 5 megs. There's no download limit. Personally, I've gone for a 10 meg connection, which so far gives me everything I need but it's good to know that I can have up to 20 more if my circumstances change. The Vonage service has turned out to be much better than some people suggested. The sound quality is sometimes possibly just a little bit down on the old copper-based service, but not enough for it to be an issue. So what are my conclusions? Well, the original aim of getting a faster and more reliable internet connection has been achieved. Since all the infrastructure was installed, we've had winds in excess of 70 miles per hour at the top of the hill with relays situated, and everything carried on working normally. From a service continuity perspective, I've got no complaints at all. From a technical standpoint, my only reservation is that I have no admin access to the transceiver, which means I'm reliant on the supplier to make configuration changes on my behalf, things like uh, port forwarding. The flip side of this is that the company can perform diagnostic and firmware upgrades remotely, so I'm usually not even aware that they're doing it. Two years on and BT are now genuinely close to rolling out fibre connections to the village. Now whether that means some people who use the wireless system will decide to switch over remains to be seen. BT offer all sorts of packages with different permutations of speed, phone calls and download limits. Those which match what I get, including my Vonage contract, all work out more expensive, so there's certainly no incentive on cost grounds alone. If you want absolute download speed, then BT can beat the 30 megabits available to me. But people are often disappointed by promises of high download speeds. Obviously 20 megs is certainly a lot better than 2, but as you increase the speed, the performance improvement they experience tails off rapidly as server speed becomes more of a limiting factor than the network infrastructure. A question I've asked myself is whether radio has any inherent advantage over fibre, or vice versa. It's difficult to come to a firm conclusion one way or another. In terms of the cost and speed of rolling out the infrastructure, radio has to win hands down. Think of the expense of digging up roads or erecting poles every few metres to carry cables round the country, compared with mounting a radio relay every few miles. On the other hand, most cabling runs along public roads, while the best locations for radio relays are likely to be on private land, so the contractual legalities of radio are probably more complicated. The need for a clear line of sight between relays and the end-user transceiver must make radio more suitable for rural areas. In a big town or city, lots of homes will be overshadowed by taller buildings or other obstacles, which I think would make radio impractical. 
probably there's no absolute answer. It just depends on where you are and the nature of the, your local environment. Certainly radio is the ideal solution for where I live, so I have no plans to jump ship to fiber even when it's available. But on the other hand, it's good to know there is an alternative, as the company supplying my connection at the moment is quite small. So if it were to disappear for any reason, there's no certainty that its services will be taken over by another operator. Even though it's likely to be overshadowed in the coming months by the availability of fibre, a lot of people now have a fast and reliable internet connection who otherwise would have had a mediocre one for the last two years. I have to admit to just an occasional sense of satisfaction when I look up at the top of the hill and I see the local relay in the distance silhouetted against the skyline and I think, I did that. Bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.